All right, we're looking in 1 Thessalonians 4. There's a chance we might wrap things up today with what we've been looking at for the last few weeks, so we'll just have to see, but there's a chance at least. So we're in 1 Thessalonians 4, and we're starting in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that we have opportunities uh, to serve uh, inside the church, outside the church, Lord. We thank you, God, for uh, SCCHE. I know they've uh, got plans um, coming up for the next school year, and, and they're getting together, God, to discuss that today. So be with them. Thanks for our partnership with them and the Learning Center, Lord, and us being able to open up our building uh, to be used to educate um, young people with a Christian education, God. That is truly a blessing for our church, Lord. We pray it's a blessing for them as well. God, thanks for the privilege of knowing you. Man, it is such a blessing to know the King of the universe. And we could talk about it, and we could pray about it, and we could sing about it all day, and we wouldn't come close to saying enough things about it. We love you, Lord. You are so good to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercies. They are new every morning, Lord. We thank you that we can worship you, the one true God, in righteousness, in holiness, in spirit, and in truth. Bless the word now. Bless our kids going back to class as they go, God. Be with them, Lord. Um, Grab their hearts at an early age and draw them steadfast to you, Lord, for your glory. Amen. All right, last week, um, which was really two weeks ago because last week was Easter, but uh, last time we talked on 1 Thessalonians, um, we talked about the return of Christ and, and kind of the different possible stages views. So we're just going to do a quick overview and review of that last sermon. It should take just a few minutes just to make sure we're all on the same page. So there's basically two views on the return of Christ. There's the two-stage view where Jesus returns twice. Uh, first, there's a the secret coming of Jesus where believers are snatched away and taken to heaven for a period of time until the final judgment comes. And then that'd be second, a public coming at that time of Jesus. The one-stage view sees Christ only returning once. This is at the end of time, when the final judgment occurs. And what we call the rapture is a public event, not a secret event. Now, every believer will have one of these two views regarding Christ's return. He'll return either in a two-stage process, one secret, one public, or he'll return once which is public. Now, 
what gets wrapped up in that and when he's coming or not uh, is the tribulation. There's two types. The general is just the kind of the general hardships and sufferings that God's people will always have to pass through. But then there's what Scripture calls the great tribulation. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So there's this great tribulation that lasts for how long? Seven years, right? Where do we get that from? The book of Daniel. Okay. Now, so you got the tribulation, you got Christ coming back either once or twice. Then, along with that, you get the rapture. Now, the term rapture just comes from the Latin Vulgate. That's just the Latin Bible. Uh, the Greek word there in First Thessalonians, we just read it, where it says, we'll be caught up, is just from the Latin, rapio, which means seize, or doesn't mean sneeze, means seize. It's pretty quick, though. <laughs> means seize or snatch away. So that's where, it, the, the rapio, that's where we get rapture, just caught up with the Lord. So everyone believes in the rapture, uh, because that's just the word that simply describes what's happening here in First Thessalonians. Uh, what we see is people have different views of what the rapture means and what it entails. Now there's four views regarding when this tribulation occurs. There's the pre-tribulation rapture, which means we, the church, are taken away before, pre, before the tribulation begins. There's the mid-tribulation rapture, which means we're taken away in the middle of the rapture, three and a half years. And then there's also a pre-wrath rapture, which believes that the church will be taken toward the end of the tribulation before the outpouring of God's wrath. These three are very similar when we talk about Christ's return. They all believe in a secret return of Christ. Then the fourth view is the post-tribulation. This does not include a secret return of Christ. This believes that the church will go through the entire great tribulation on the earth. After the great tribulation, Christ returns. Okay. And this view sees the rapture as occurring simultaneously to the return of Christ after the great tribulation. Now what I want to do partly today is walk through the first couple verses that we've been reading for a few weeks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want to start in verse... 16. It says, for the Lord himself. Now I want us to pause for a moment and I want us to take this in because friends, this verse should give us great hope. Jesus himself is coming back. It's him literally in the flesh. He's not sending a representative. No, Jesus one day himself will return for his bride. Think about a groom on his wedding day. You know, I mean, they're like, you know, the night, the, the day of, and even like the night before, they're like separated and, and they're staying apart. But once they come together and the bride comes down the aisle and all the, the pastor does all the formalities and the covenant is formed, right? Like the rest of that night, they don't leave each other's side. They're together. The groom doesn't send someone else for the bride. He goes and gets the bride himself. That's what we see here. So Jesus is going to come back and he's going to claim his church for his own. Jesus himself in the flesh. This is the fulfillment of the angel's words in Acts. Look, 
keep your finger in Thessalonians, but look briefly in Acts. I want you to see this. The very first chapter of Acts. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they, talking about the disciples, asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here we see this fulfillment. Jesus is coming back exactly like the angel said. The same way he left, physically, clouds, he's coming back physically with the clouds. Now look again at verse 16 back in 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So he ascended, now he will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Well, what will those words be? Well, we don't know. But he's going to command something. And he'll be shouting whatever it is. With a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel... What's an archangel? There's, like, there's an hierarchy among... There's actually different types of angels. We've talked about it before. But there's an hierarchy of, of angels. And an archangel would just be an angel that is above other angels. An archangel. So it denotes a position of power or influence. So, so an archangel... There's only actually one archangel named... You all know who it is? Michael. That's true. That's a good name. <clears throat> but do you know what book this Archangel Michael is named in? Don't you like these little pop quizzes you get just about like every other week? Does it make you feel like you know your Bible? <laughs> Jude. Jude verse 9. You can look at it later. So we get one Archangel at least named. This one, it doesn't say who it's going to be. But with the voice of an archangel, and then listen, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now that's, a, that's the, the third sound heard if you've been counting, right? Cry of command, voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. What was the trumpet for um, normally in, in Old Testament? Well, for important announcements, to gather people together, to gather for war or going into war. But... There's a couple passages that use the trumpet of God, just like it's used here. They give us a little bit of insight into what we're looking at and what we should expect. Look at Joel chapter 2. And I know we looked at some of these a few weeks ago when we talked about the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is is near. And then he goes on and talks about it a little bit. Look at Zephaniah chapter 1. Sorry, Steve. Is Steve I don't even see Steve. He knew I was going to go to Zephaniah. He didn't even show up today. Sorry, Steve. I had to go back to Zephaniah today. So you got to be careful if you call out the pastor when you get a chance to be up here because I'm up here a lot more. <laughs> Zephaniah chapter 1. 
Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Both times talking about the day of the Lord... We have the trumpet. What is it signifying? Judgment. It's signifying judgment is coming. So it announces the coming of the Lord, but it also announces one other thing. This is kind of interesting. It announces the time when the dispersed people of God would be gathered and God would bring them salvation. The dispersed people. So what, is, what does he do? We're going to see it in these passages. He gathers his people together. Look at Isaiah 27, verse 12. In that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day a great trumpet will be blown and those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who are driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. This in, in chapter 27 is the redemption of Israel, the fullness of the redemption of Israel. And here, what do we see? Oh, the trumpet. The trumpet's blown. And what happens? God gathers his people together. Do you think Paul had this in mind when the Spirit inspired him to write 1 Thessalonians 4? There's a trumpet going on. What happens? The people are gathered together. We see this again in Zechariah chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, that, I mean, that kind of rings true, right? Because that's what we just had a couple weeks ago with Palm Sunday, right? And then Easter, Jesus coming into Jerusalem. So Matthew informs us of that and, and references this scripture. It goes on, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bull drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Both these passages, we see that the trumpet is calling and God is gathering his people together. He will save his people 
This is very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Go ahead and turn there. We're, we're already turning to all these scriptures, so we might as well just keep turning. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. When are, when are we changed? Yep. We'll all be changed in a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet. Not the second to last trumpet, but the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. There you go. Again, we have a, a correlation there in thoughts of First Thessalonians 4. Friends, this day of the Lord that we studied a few weeks ago, and this coming of our Lord Jesus, they're one and the same. We see this actually in 1 Thessalonians. Turn back there. So he mentions in verse 15, we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord. Okay, that, that's the context there of, of what he's, the coming of the Lord. And then it goes on and says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So first he says, hey, it hasn't happened, right? Because there's some confusion among the Thessalonians. Okay, um, Here's how it's going to go. The people have died, and it's okay that they've, that they've died because Jesus hasn't forgot about them, and he's going to come and give them a glorified body as well. He's going to come back, resurrect them, their bodies. Their, he, they'll come with him, as it says earlier in 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> their souls, or their spirits, be reunited with their bodies. And what? He'll reign forever, as we're going to see. So he goes on, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So it's going to catch people off guard, right? That's the point. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But here's the thing. Look what it says in verse 4. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So they're going to be there for the day of the Lord. Why? Because it's the same day as, as when Jesus comes back. This sudden destruction that's going to come is not going to be for the people of God, but they're going to be there for it. Why? Because he says right here, you're not going to be surprised by it. You won't be surprised by that day. You'll be there for the day, but you're not going to be surprised by it. It wouldn't make sense for him to say, well, you're not going to be surprised by it because you're not going to be here. No, you're not going to be surprised by it. Why? Because you are the children of the light that he goes on in verse 5. You're not going to be surprised because God has illuminated your minds and your spirits. You're not going to be surprised because you know the word and you know what to expect when that is coming. <clears throat> if that doesn't make it clear enough for you, turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. Oh, so he's referencing it again, right? He wants to teach them a little bit more on this subject. The coming of, that's that same word that we've looked at in the past, the parousia. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. 
Did you see how he just linked those two together? The coming of our Lord Jesus to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They were still a little bit concerned that maybe they had missed the day. They hadn't. And in verse 3, he goes on and gives them some reasons why that day hasn't come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. What day? The coming of our Lord Jesus. The day of the Lord. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So what's he doing? Paul's instructing them so they know what to look for regarding the signs of this coming man of lawlessness. The first is what? That rebellion or apostasy must occur. That's what he says. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So the rebellion or the apostasy. What's the second thing? Well, there's going to be this man of lawlessness. He'll be revealed. Now think about that. Why didn't Paul say, that day hasn't happened because you're still here? I mean, that, that, that's, if, if, if we believe in, in a, in a two-stage view, he should have just said, hey, that day hasn't happened because you're still here. You're still present. No, no, he doesn't do that, though. He goes on to lay out for them a description of the man of lawlessness, And the most natural understanding is that he does this because he wants Christians to be able to recognize him when he appears. Why? Because they're going to be there for it. Believers will be present. So the point of this passage is not that Christians have gone to heaven before the man of lawlessness appears, but that Christians recognize him because they'll still be here. So it's like he's saying, I want you to recognize the lawless one. I want you to know that he'll have these characteristics... And I don't want you to be deceived when he comes. Why? Because you're going to still be here when he arrives. Look a little bit further. We'll keep reading. Verse 5, we're still in 2 Thessalonians 2. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then... Take special note of verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. There's that same word again, that parousia. So he starts it in verse 1. Now concerning the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus, how is the lawless one dealt with fully? When Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back. So when does Jesus come back, though? After the lawless one appears. Then Jesus kills the lawless one. Now here's the thing. When you look at the scriptures, it emphasizes two comings of Christ. The first was at his birth. This was what many theologians call like the suffering servant. The second is at his return. This will be his kingly appearance the jews were expecting the second type of return the entire time they thought there was only one they saw all the prophecies in the old testament about the messiah reigning and ruling and this view became the only view they had such that 
the other passages that indicate his suffering, his affliction, were overlooked or misinterpreted. So when Jesus first appears, what happens? He doesn't fit the mold of what they were expecting. They thought it'd be flashy, powerful, not, not some ignoble birth to some young, poor teenage girl from the outskirts of Galilee. No, the Messiah would be royalty and powerful and come from a family of influence. So they thought and assumed. Well, they assumed wrong. Friends, I believe there's one final return of Christ yet to occur. And there's no secret coming. We will be here for the tribulation. I've already made part of my argument. If the day of the Lord is indeed the same as the coming of Christ, then we are truly here until that day comes. Now let me make a a couple additional points that I think might help you. One, the, 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 the one view, the one stage view, has been the, the view of the church and the only view of the church for the first 1,800 years of Christian history. That doesn't mean it's right, but that was the only view. The post-tribulation view was the only view, and that was it. So while the bodily resurrection of believers is a long-established doctrine in the Christian faith, and it's firmly rooted in Scripture, the specific terminology of a rapture really only came into popular use in the 19th century. And that's where we get certain forms of premillennialism and certain forms of dispensational theology. So it's a recent invention. Again, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but at a minimum, um, it should give us pause. Um, It was popularized by John Nelson Darby. He kind of developed the system around uh, the mid-1800s or so. Um, If you have a a Schofield reference Bible, C.I. Schofield was a big proponent of it. Um, Some of you that are a bit older might have read the book, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. It's the same type of theology. The Left Behind series kind of like super popularized it. Um, So that's the first one, which isn't really the biggest knock against the position. Um, but But the question is this. Um, if it's a, a separate and distinct event from the second coming of Christ, um, is that it, or, it, or does it occur simultaneously? And I'm, gonna, I'm arguing it, it occurs simultaneously. Uh, those who affirm the pre-trib, the mid-trib, or the pre-wrath view see it as separate, as we've established. Um, so let me explain. But before I explain, let me remind you, it's not an issue to divide over. Break fellowship over leave a church over, not join the church over. Um, I don't say that for our sakes. I guess I do in part, but I just say it for the future, wherever the Lord might, might take you. Um, one believer believes the rapture occurs before the public return of Christ, and another believer believes the rapture occurs as part of the public return of Christ. It's okay to be in either camp. Uh, but let me make a few points. First, it's important to remember that here in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, in the context Paul is addressing the topic of the resurrection of the believers who have died before Christ's return. He has nothing really to say about the removal of the church prior to or during the tribulation. That's not his focus at all. I don't even think it's in the, in the rearview mirror. Uh, Paul explains that believers who have died will be resurrected at the return of Christ, and those who are alive at that time will receive their glorified bodies when Jesus comes down from heaven. 
What he doesn't say in this same passage we've been looking at for weeks and weeks is that Jesus comes back, the dead rise in Christ, everyone gets their glorified bodies, and then we're removed from the earth and the tribulation comes. We, we just don't get that. Now you might infer that, like some have, but it's an inference. It's the same thing that Paul references. We've, we've already looked at it in 1 Corinthians 15. Second, when you read 1 Thessalonians, and I know some of you have been doing that regularly. I think that's good as we're looking through it. Um, and you notice the references to his coming. There's actually quite a few references to that parousia word. So if you're a Thessalonian hearing this read, what would you think when you heard these verses being read in one hearing? Um, if there were two comings, they'd be asking themselves each time uses, Paul uses the term, they'd be, they'd be like, which one is he talking about? The first one or the second one? It just becomes a little disjointed as you hear it flow throughout 1 Thessalonians. It's one of the reasons I encourage you to read larger chunks of Scripture so you can get the flow of thought going on. But let's just look at just a couple of these briefly. So turn in 1 Thessalonians 2. That's the first mention of it. So at the end of 2, he says in verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? It is, not, is it not you? So that, that's the first reference. Then look at chapter 3. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That's the second reference. Then the third reference is the one that we've been reading quite a bit in 4.15. We who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord. Then he references it again right towards the end of the book. In chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then look again, because he's still writing to the Thessalonians, in, in, in Second Thessalonians, look, look at chapter 2 again, because that's what he mentions again. Now concerning, in, in verse 1, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. So that's another reference of the parousia. And then again in verse 8, which we read, the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. All those would lead the Thessalonians to really just have a view of, of one coming of Christ, really like you see in the rest of the New Testament scriptures. They emphasize one coming. Third, this Greek word parousia, um, usually meaning presence or arrival or coming, um, it, it, it's kind of like, Paul clearly seems to conceive of the resurrection of the saints and catching up of the believers to meet the Lord in the air occurring at the same time as his visible return. That's kind of like a part two to my second point. But here's the, here's the other thing I would say. It seems pretty clear that believers go through the tribulation. Look at Matthew 24. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So 
after the tribulation, right, that, that we've been talking about. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So what happens? The tribulation happens first, then we see Jesus coming back and gathering the people together. There's the angels, there's the loud trumpet call. Finally, it's often assumed that those saints who are either alive or resurrected in a normal rapture view will return to heaven with Jesus. He comes back, secret coming, they're up in heaven for seven years, three and a half years, or just a little bit of time while the tribulation wraps up. But here's the thing. Back in 1 Thessalonians 4, and this is very important, Verse 17, we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. To meet the Lord in the air. This Greek word was used when a dignitary paid an official visit to a city. And what would happen? The citizens of the city would go out to meet this dignitary. And what would they do? They would usher him into the city. What's the idea? We're being caught up into the air with the Lord. It doesn't say clearly which way we go after that. It doesn't say if we go up or down. But if you were following the Greek usage here, in fact, it's the same word. Look at Matthew 25, because I want you to see this. In fact, it's, it's the reference of Jesus here. It's the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So, I mean, it's the same Greek word. What do they do? They go out to meet him to what? Usher him back. What's the reference here? This is the kingdom of heaven with Jesus returning. So this idea is that we are caught up into the air when Jesus returns and we usher him in to the new heavens and the new earth that he establishes here on earth. That is likely and, and most clearly the plainest understanding of the passage. That's how the Thessalonians would understand it. That's how we should understand it. Thus, instead of a secret rapture to heaven, 1 Thessalonians 4 suggests a visible return of the Son of Man to earth with great fanfare and glory. The church will suffer through the persecution as it has done all throughout history. But God's elect will remain faithful and we'll meet the Lord in the air to usher him back to earth as the great king. Now, whether you think you'll be here for none of the tribulation, some of the tribulation, or all the tribulation, friends, you need to be ready. Don't be like those five virgins who got caught off guard and weren't ready. Tribulations in the general sense are occurring 
throughout the world right now. Christians are being hunted down. Christians are in prison. Christians are murdered simply for being Christians. And friends, we in the Western world, we're living in a bubble of protection. But that bubble is about to pop. So we have to be prepared. So you're like, well, how will Christians survive the tribulation? And my question is, how will we not? God knows how to sustain his church throughout anything. Will, will we be tested? Absolutely. Will some fall away? Yes. We will see those who are truly his and aren't. When the heat gets turned up, we will see who are truly his. Friends, you got to stick close to Jesus because you don't want to be one of the ones that falls away. And all those things that Jesus talked about, are, are you willing to walk away from family for the sake of Christ? Are you, are you prepared to be betrayed by, by your own blood because you're going to be faithful to Jesus? Those things will happen very near and very soon. And you better set your mind and your heart very sternly and solidly on what you're going to do now so that when the time comes, you really don't even have to think about it. That you're close with Jesus and you'll stick with him to the end. Look what it says in Matthew 24. In verse 21, he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. And check this out, friends, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Why? Because the elect will still be here. Why? Because God loves his children and will protect his elect ones. He will see them through to the end. Friends, we've got to remember something about our great God. Nebuchadnezzar's mightiest army couldn't stand up to the Lord. The greatest powers that have ever been could not stand up to the Lord. I mean, he humbled one of the greatest kings in the world and made him run around in a forest for months like a rabid wild dog. Think about that. And the greatest of Solomon's wisdom pales in comparison to the wisdom of King Jesus. He knows what's best for us. He'll see us through till the very end. All nations, kingdoms, empires will fall, but King Jesus' rule will last forever. Friends, make sure you're part of that kingdom. Who cares about your citizenship here on this earth? In that sense, we're all illegal immigrants, all right? We got a true citizenship in heaven, and you got to make sure that you got the real ID card. You got to make sure you're going to be a part of that kingdom. Who cares about any kingdom here or any country? Be with Jesus. Be a part of his kingdom. Be a part of his country because, friends, he is truly coming back. He's coming back. And you know what? People might mock him and scorn him and ridicule him now. And they might and will do the same and have done the same for us. We're going to be mocked, scorned, ridiculed. But friends, Psalm 2 makes it clear. Jesus indeed and truly and literally has the last laugh. He has it. Okay? And one day, my Bible says that every knee will bow. I don't know about you, but I'm going to bow that knee willingly, voluntarily, and right now, okay? That's what I'm going to do. 
And I want to make sure that you all do that too. Every knee is going to bow. Make sure that you're one that does it because you love Him. Because He's your Master. Because He's your King. Because He's your Savior. Because He's your Lord. So yes, the emphasis in Scripture is on Christ returning. In one sense, who cares when it is? Because He is coming back. Alright? And He will come back. And He will claim His church as His bride. And He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will come back physically, literally, to claim us for His own. That's what he tells us at the end of Matthew. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 9 says and guarantees he will appear a second time. He will appear. So be ready, my friends. Whether it's today, next week, next month, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, be ready. Be prepared. Okay? The road is what that leads to life? It's narrow. It's narrow. And a lot of people thought they were on that road. They've fallen off that road. They've fallen off. And, and you better stick to Jesus really close. Because he's your guide on that little narrow road. Where you're squeezed up against on the mountains. On that tiny little path trying to get by. And if you don't have him to cling to, you're going to be toast. And you're going to fall off. And others are going to take that easy wide path that just looks like it leads to all beautiful pastures and, and awesomeness. And the, and the pleasures of sin. That's really what it is. That's the wide path, friends. And you can get on that path and you can enjoy it for however long God gives you on this earth. But it is the path that leads to destruction. It will destroy you. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. You will pay for an eternity in hell. So choose God's way. It is the hard way. Let's not mince words. It is tough but it is very rewarding to know the sweetness truly of Jesus as your Savior, to know the awesomeness of having a relationship with the great King of the world, nothing compares. If you don't have that, friends, then get it. Get it. Because you're missing out big time. You're missing out. I'm not even talking about heaven. That's like bonus. You're missing out now on the joys of knowing Jesus personally, on the joys of worshiping an amazing God who loves you so much he sacrificed his own son for you. So trust in him and walk with him and seek him fully. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray for anyone here who does not know the sweetness of knowing you. Let it be today for them, Father. Let them trust in you. Let them trust in your Son. And do like it talks about in Revelation. And come into the, the home of their heart and have true fellowship with them. Let them taste of the goodness of you, Father. Even today as we took communion, Lord, just a, a, a small foretaste of the feast to come in heaven, Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, you truly are good. And God, we do pray you'd sustain us. Strengthen our resolve to stand against the tidal wave of persecution that is coming. That we might stand firm, and regardless of the size of that tidal wave, we'd stand through it. Not on our own, but because we are on the rock that no tidal wave 
can move at all. Thank you for being our rock, Jesus. For being the place where we can stand firm. For holding us against the tides of this world. And may we truly walk with you every step of the way, Father. Thank you for your spirit who fills us to do so. He gives us illumination. He gives us discernment. So may we walk in wisdom before you, Father. And may we glorify your name always. Amen.